Sunik is the southernmost province in the Republic of Armenia. It's a beautiful and mountainous region with great strategic importance. The latter is probably why you've been hearing about Sunik recently. If you've been following the news on what's been happening back in Armenia since the ceasefire with Azerbaijan back in November over Artsakh, during the attack on Artsakh last fall, we produced a short series related to Artsakh. One of the episodes was The Story of Artsakh, where our resident historian and good friend, Chris J. Khachadur, took us through our people's history in that particular region. So we would like to do that again, periodically throughout the show to spend some time highlighting the history of a particular Armenian region, today's being Sunik. You are listening to Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haik Minasyan. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for coming back. I'm super excited to have you here. I, I love having these history combos with you. Welcome back, man. Hey, I got to be back. Um, so in our Artsakh series, you and I did the, the story of Artsakh where we uh, you know, went through the millennia over a particular historical Armenian region's history. And I'd really like to you know, do these over, over time, like uh, different regions throughout Armenia. But you know, with everything going on in Sunik today, um, I think uh, Sunik is very appropriate to talk about. Um, to kind of like catch us up in Sunik in the last month, we've been hearing about how Azerbaijani troops have been kind of encroaching and coming on the, uh, Armenian side of the border, um, been harassing the Armenian population there. They are really putting pressure on Armenia to create this corridor. So Sunik has become like this, uh, it's been in the news a lot recently. And I think it'd be very important for us to discuss and talk about the history of the region of Sunik. I love Sunik. I went back in 2018 with my birthright group. We stayed in Meghri for a night. It was beautiful. It's like a completely different uh, climate zone almost, a little warmer. Like all the pomegranates really grow out there. The uh, the Arkaya Narinches, uh, the persimmons, there's a lot of persimmons down there. Uh, really beautiful part of Armenia. You've been there too. Yeah, right? also with birthright. Right. Um, Meghri. Yeah. But I think, and so you like stop by a few different like sites and landmarks over there. Yeah. I think... My favorite was the Zorats Karer or Karahunj. And I, th- I know, you, I think uh, <laughs> you know what it is, but um, Karahunj is, they call it the Armenian Stonehenge, Stonehenge. And it's, you know, it's kind of debated what it exactly is. It's thousands of years older than the European British Stonehenge, uh, like 7,000 BC. Who knows? They don't exactly know exactly when, but it's this debate whether it's an archaeological, uh, archaeo-astronomical site. What that means is it might have something to do with the stars and the sun and the moon, um, or it's a ritual space. But it's really cool because uh, you go there and they're, uh, you know, geometrically aligned and there's these little holes in all these rocks that they believe either are ways to, like, look at the different stars at night or... uh, But the name Karahunj means um, Kar, which is rock, and Hunj is sound. And so uh, the story goes is, like, through these holes, like, (laughs) the wind kind of makes noise through them and stuff. So... That was my favorite. Did you have a favorite uh, landmark in Sunik that you really liked when you went? I mean, I really liked Kapan as a town. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really pretty. It's like in a deep canyon along the Vorodon River. And then there's like a tomb memorial for Garagin Nizhda. Oh, right. I love and that spot. Also, and it's the foot of Mount Hostup. Yeah, with the mountain in the background. Yeah. It's actually really, really beautiful. And then in the middle of the city, there's actually a statue of David back on his horse. Didn't they say, like, uh, didn't uh, Karagin Nizhda say he wanted to be buried on that mountain or something uh, up there? Yeah, so it's like a 
it's like a tomb memorial type thing. So He's not buried there, but and Goris, which is one of these other cities that is over there, uh, was also very beautiful, really like very cool rocks and stuff. And fun fact: before we get into the rest of the history, you guys, uh, during World War II, a lot of the German prisoners of war were actually stationed or put in a camp near Goris and were instrumental in creating the infrastructure of that city. So if you notice how uh, squared and how like I don't know like organized it is, you could thank the Germans for that one. I even met people in uh, Sunik. Uh, in Meghri, we had like these German, you know, non-Armenian people with us. And these Armenians, they actually took German classes back in the Soviet Union. They were able to speak German German with these German guys. So it was very cool. Um, so, but Karahunj is like almost Armenian prehistory, Armenian ancient pagan history. Uh, and then, you know, we get into uh, ancient Armenian kingdoms, which, you know, from Urartu's period... Uh, 800 BC to all the way up until after the Persians took us over. Let's say the first Armenian kingdom started around 3-400 BC, you'd say, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and Sunik was an integral province. But the name Sunik, uh, and for, the, for a short while, I wasn't sure what the name Sunni came from. Uh, it sounded like Sunni Islam for a second, but uh, I remember looking it up and it was actually the name of a family, correct? It's a bit complicated. We don't know exactly where Sunik originates from. There's a few theories. One theory is that it's from uh, Urartian god Shivini. So Shuini. Sounds um, similar, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's one theory. Another theory is that it's actually from Sisak. Sisak was a descendant of Haik, the legendary patriarch of Armenians. Me? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> close enough. Yeah, um, yeah. And his grandfather, Geram, settled along the Gerama Mountains between Yerevan and uh, like Sevan. Gerarguni? is also related to the Geram. And if you notice, all of them have the K at the end, right? I yeah. Think, I think we mentioned this in the Artsakh episode, how K means plural, you know, the place, the many uh, Sunnis, let's say, many. Yeah, so Sisak was said to be the, the ancestor of this family, the Sunnis. So Sunik means the land of the Sunni. So other Armenian noble families like the Rushtuni, they had their own province called Rashtunik. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a similar trend across the islands. The highs were from Haik. It's, uh, you see this uh, uh, suffix uh, in a lot of Armenian yeah. uh, names and place names. Um, and the Sunni family, from what we understand, was the noble family of that region during the ancient Armenian kingdoms, right? During Tigran Mezis' yeah. time, during uh, the Ardashesian and Arshaguni kingdoms. They've the been family. the main family there for over a thousand years. That's crazy. And so that's why it's uh, it's synonymous with the region, the name Sunik, and till this day. But the Sunni family, I mean, when did they go out of, uh, get out of power? Were they around how long? Well, it depends. So the Sunnis, they kind of branched out to smaller families after their state collapsed in 1170. Okay. But there's a long history up to that region. Oh my God. Um, that time of history. So for a thousand years, this family was kind of in charge in that region. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's not much else known, I guess it's hard to tell, but, uh, how do we know for sure that Sunik was a part of this Armenian kingdom? So we know that Sunik was a part of Armenia because there is a stone from the second century BC that King Ardashas had left behind saying that here is the border of Armenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was south of Lake Sevan. So the Lake Sevan area, Gerhard Gunik and modern day Faudstor, we're all part of Sunik, as well as 
the Kashatakh region of Artsakh, which is now like part of Azerbaijan. Western Artsakh, we could say. Yeah. So this rock, uh, which has lasted throughout time, kind of like what states the different provinces that were part of that border area, you could say. It kind of says like here is a border. It's a border stone. A it's border used stone. across the world, even in the Roman times. Um, right. And it was written in Aramaic. Oh, that, that was that was the, the language of imperial Persia. That was the major language of the time, yeah. right? So you know, there's you know rock proof of the Sunik being part of, part of an integral part of the Armenian kingdom at that time, um, and so throughout the centuries, and we're not going to get too into depth here. So throughout those centuries, uh, Armenians were ruling that region. Christianity comes to the region. Um, we have you know. Surpovanes, which is like a sixth, seventh, sixth or seventh century AD, like a monastery or church. There, it's a monastery, and near Sisian, which is where that Soratskaded are, the the Armenian Stonehenge. But uh, like you said earlier, you went and visited Bagabert, which was one of those castles of that time period, right? Yeah, Bagabert has its origins in the fourth century, I believe. Um, it's one of the larger fortresses in the region and was the last stronghold of the Sunnis. When the Seljuks came in 1170. So it lasted up until then, huh? like the yeah. entire five, six hundred years there. That's crazy. There's another one, I believe. It's called Sambataberd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nowadays in Varadstor, but again, Varadstor was historically part of Sunik's Sunik. region. Right. Uh, some guy, Sambat, must have built it, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sambat. That's also from the fifth century. And again, until the Turks came. It was in over. being used and still being Yeah, I mean, even everything. after the Turks left, it was renovated and then it was demolished by the mongols well real fast and i always think about this because there's a lot of other countries that can like they still have royal blood within the population in the sense that there's still noble families that they can attest their families coming from Mm -hmm. it's hard for armenians because for the most part they wiped out our nobility right like throughout the centuries that was like a political tool constantly i mean the first major step was by the arabs in 705 they burned 800 noblemen alive in a church in akhichevan yeah i mean uh Um, also, the Byzantines would then go and move a lot of these noble families yeah. away from their the border regions because they the Ardunis were moved to Sepastia, Mar de Sivas. The Bakradunis were forcibly removed from Ani to Tomarza near Kayseri or Gesaria. Away from the border regions. So, a lot of these noble families, like the Sunnis, if anything, the Sunnis are one of those uh, unique cases where they were, were able to last a little longer. Um, but a lot of these families, you know, they died out or they were forced out. And uh, um, and we really we see the end of the Armenian kingdoms around the 11th century, correct? Mm-hmm. With the Bagradunis and the Daani, the capital city, um, was Sunni part of the Bagratid Armenia? So the kingdom of Sunik appears around the same time as the Bagradunis. So it's a separate kingdom, distinct but somewhat of a vassal. Like they intermarried, right? They're um, connected. They were. I mean, this kingdom of Sunik was definitely closer to the kingdom of Armenia, centered on than let's say Vosporagan. They were a lot more antagonistic toward each other. Towards each other. Right. Um, I believe Princess Mariam Sunni had married one of the Bagradunik kings. Makes sense. So they were a lot closer, and they worked together. Um, and even the families of Artsakh, a lot of them originated from the Sisakan family, the Sunnis. Got their nobility or their legitimacy from the Sunni dynasty, maybe. Uh, yeah, because that was an eastward expansion. Right. Way, you know, before Christ. Yeah. The one figure we know of is Vasak Sunni, who was like the... Oh, right. <laughs> the black sheep of Armenian history. You're right. <laughs> um, no one talks about him anymore, you know? Well, no one names their kids Vasak, Vasak anymore. Yeah. Uh, so for context, Vasak Sunni was the guy that fought with Vartan Mamigonyan. Against. The, like, well, <laughs> he was going to fight with him. Yeah. Switched sides to the... To the, the, the Iran, The Sasanian side. So... 
um, the original uh, Benedict Arnold or whatever you want to call yeah. it, you know, of Armenian history. So you're right. His last name was Sunni. And you do see the name Sunni. I, I know there's an Armenian historian with the last name Sunni as well uh, up in New York as well. So you do see those names. I don't know if they have a connection to those families. but I mean, that family's from Artsakh, so most likely. There could be, yeah, 100%. Um, so uh, medieval era, you know, we have a new renaissance in Armenia. And you'll see this theme or this uh, uh, renaissance throughout the different Armenian regions when we talk about Armenian history, when we go to these other regions. There was a medieval renaissance where Armenians were building uh, dozens of monasteries and churches and complexes and thousands and thousands of books. And I think the most famous uh, landmark or monument uh, heritage site in Sunik is the Datev Monastery. I mean, I don't know if it's the most famous, but in the recent years, once they've made that uh, rail, not the railway, but uh, tramway. the tramway, um, it's become one of those uh, uh, top uh, sites to go visit for tourists. And um, it's beautiful and it's still very much intact. It's on top of a cliff. And, uh, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was it the Mongols? Who was it that went there and burned all the books? It was the Seljuks in 1170, which marked the end of the kingdom of Sunik. So they <laughs> burnt down 10,000 manuscripts that thought to have destroyed Mahabert fortress and laid waste to the land. Not only am I going to kill you all, I'm going to destroy your history. I wonder where I've heard that one before. I'm going to wipe out all your books so that no one remembers you. They yeah. do that threat once in a while, you know, where no one will remember who you ever were. Yeah. But here we are, <laughs> 1,000 years later. But okay. here's the thing, though. I mean, the Seljuks did that, yeah, and that was 1170. But by 1211, I mean, not even 50 years later, the Zakarians, these generals of Armenian origin, serving in a Georgian army, um, liberated Sunik and installed the Orbelian family. Orbelians. And I've heard of them. The Orbelians are famous for building these large monasteries in Sunik, Vyotsord. So they built Noravank, they renovated Datev, um, as you mentioned. And fun fact about Datev is that it was actually home to one of the oldest universities in Armenia. Right, I've heard of that too. That's what they told us there. So the original university is in Kalatsor, which is in Vyotsord. So historically, again, Sunik. Yeah. Um, and that was established in 1280. Um, by a man from Mush, Nerses Mashetsi, in 1280, and it was there until 1340, moving then to Datev. And it was in Datev until 1434, when it was kind of ransacked by Shahruh, mm -hmm. who was a descendant of Tamerlane. Oh, interesting. So yeah, from 1280 to 1434, so for well, about so 150 years. So the family that followed uh, the, the Sunnis was the Orbelians, or the Zakarians in, uh, put in Well, the Zakarians or, installed the Orbelians. The Orbelians, but what happened to the Orbelians? Do we kind of know, or what happened to them? So they're kind of still around. Um, a lot of them, again, so we mentioned how they kind of disappeared, or their dominion collapsed in the 15th century because of the... Tamerlane's invasions and the Karakoinlu and Akkoinlu Turkic tribal confederations that laid waste and made Armenia to a desert, a lot of the Orbelians moved to Georgia. There's a theory that they're actually from Georgia, from a place called Orbeti, oh. and then they, they moved back. That so, would make sense. I mean, the presidential Orbeni palace, Malis, yeah. the presidential palace of the Georgian president is called Orbeliani Palace. Mm. So there's theories. It's kind of like the whole Bakradoni Bakrationi thing. Yeah. Um, so they probably have, they've swayed both sides, Armenia and Georgia. That's usually how those noble families worked anyway. Yeah. Um, and those, you know, th these parts of Armenia were almost probably more connected to the Caucasus rather than like Western Armenia all the way near Giliga, yeah, you yeah. know, at the end of, of the day, just geographically closer. So I know I remember thinking or seeing that there was, you know, 
Orbelian manners in Artsakh too, like where th- these families still had their, I don't know, I don't know if they were still lords in a way, but, you know, they still had, um, the Orbelian family did co- uh, continue. And you're saying they're still around today? Or, yeah, know? there's like famous Armenians, the last name Orbelian, like Konstantin Orbelian. And they were like doctors and writers in the Soviet era who had the last name Orbelian or Orbeli. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, even though the Orbelians collapsed in the 15th century, um, by that point, the Armenian Catholic Osiris returned to Etchmiadzin in 1441. So there was already a reawakening of Armenian identity and political establishments in the region. And you saw the rise of these Meliks. We mentioned them in the Artsakh episode. Mm-hmm. Melik is an Arabic term meaning king, but it was more of a princely, noble title, like a right. lord. Yeah. Um, they were also called Donoder in Armenian, or like Donder. We saw oh, use yeah. as landlord. Yeah. <laughs> they were lords on the local land. Um, and collected taxes and imposed their own laws. So Sunik had a few melikdoms, if you will, or you know, principalities, small entities. And are we was Sunik under the Iranians at this point? Uh, Persian Empire, which empire was it around? So like? yeah, when the Karakoinlu and Akkoinlu and those Turkic tribes, tribes came, yeah. they were there from like the 1300s when the Mongol Ilkhanate collapsed until 1501, when the Safavids kind of reemerged as this Iranian superpower. And the Safavids held the region until 1722 when the Afghans invaded Iran and the Safavid dynasty was on the verge of collapse. Well, could you name, I, I think we were talking before this, that there were a few uh, notable Armenians from this region. And we're about to get into this early Armenian independence movement in the 1700s that kind of started in this Sunnic region. But these guys seem like the predecessors. Yeah. Um, so one of the main figures we have is Israel Ori. He was born in Sisian. And again, he was from the Melik families, from the Melik Haigazians. Um, and he was instrumental in kind of trying to gain international support in Russia, Germany, even Britain, um, to kind of help liberate Armenia, send some support to these long-lost Christians. Um, well, because these this whole region, whether it was Nakhichevan or Sunik, uh, they were, you know, uh, famous merchants and traders like uh you know moving yeah. uh product from like asia to europe and you know they're on these merchant ships working with the europeans uh, i'm sure some of them were wealthy to the point where they were like hey look it's uh you know we're we're second class citizens you know uh uh they dreamt of an independent armenia um, yeah so i mean while israel odi was sunik born and raised um another figure that kind of came right after him is called hofsep amin or joseph amin he was born in Iran and then raised in India. Uh, but again, his family is originally from Nakhichevan. Um, and he was, again, instrumental in going to London and elsewhere and trying to gain international support for these Armenians. Another famous figure we have is Shahamir Shahamidian. Again, Iran-born to a family of expelled Armenians. Moved to India and even him and his son both have written testimony saying they want to see this independent Armenia. Didn't one of them write a constitution or like a very short so constitution? So Shahamir Shahamidian... Um, Orogait um, Parats is the book he wrote. It's the constitution for Armenia. It's one of the earliest like liberal constitutions I've ever heard of because it's saying stuff like all the people of the land of Armenia will be treated equally, Armenian or not Armenian, um, in a free country. And it's actually unprecedented how it's one of the earliest like uh, you know statements to a independent Armenia and a like non-monarchic uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, sounds like it, Republic, you know. It was published in 1773, and Article 3 of it said, and they quote, Every human being, whether Armenian or of some other race, whether man or woman, born in Armenia or brought there from another country, 
shall live in equality and shall be free in all their occupations. Nobody shall have the right to enslave another person, and workers should be paid like in any other kind of job, as is laid down in Armenian legislation. What year was this again? 1773. So like early <laughs> enlightenment, I guess, huh? Just I mean, the funny before. thing is it predates the U.S. Constitution, right? which is like the model constitution for the world. I know, and, and especially for our part of the world, I feel like this is pretty cool, like uh, unprecedented and yeah. uh, some Armenian guy from uh, India at this point writing these he things. He is writing in India at this point, in Madras. And, and I love what it says on his grave. His son's grave. Or his son's grave. Jacob. What does it say? I don't have a direct quote, but it basically says, um, I wish I saw the day where someone rose among our ranks worthy enough to liberate our homeland. Right. Um, and he, he knew he was maybe too early for his time, but... He died like at 29. He was pretty young when he died. What, what years? And this is still the end of the 1700s? He died in 1770-something. Well, so he must have known about David Beck. Yeah. Right. Like, he probably is thinking about that era. Uh, so, and this is one of my, like, favorite parts of Armenian history that not a lot of people know about is the David Beck story. Who is David Beck? Um, so in the early 1700s, uh, the Safavid Empire? Safavids who ruled there were... They collapsing. Were, yeah, 1722, they're already the Afghans invaded and the Ottomans were like, oh. Time to take advantage <laughs> of the fact that they're weak and they're distracted and they're disorganized. Let's try to land grab. Mm -hmm. And the locals of the Caucasus, the Armenians, and necessarily, let's say all the groups were kind of fighting for their own chance at independence at the same time. And uh, I love telling this story, so I'll kind of jump into it, is, uh, you know, these Armenians, you know, we have to fight to survive because we're going to either be conquered by a new master who are, is unpredictable, right? Um, and so they requested assistance from the king of Georgia, or uh, was it Kaheti at this time, the kingdom of Kaheti? It was Kartli. Kartli, right, Kingdom Kartli. So the Georgian king, who was the, probably the closest Christian ruler at that time yeah. for the Armenians, they asked for assistance. And what he did is he sent them an Armenian general, David Beck, who is from Sunik. He's a local, yeah. And there's a town called David Beck today, right? In, it's a village. It's yeah. a village. It was in, actually bombed during the recent war. Yeah, there was a bomb that fell. Yeah. Two uh, civilians were killed there. Yeah, it's right on the border with Artsakh. And, um, and so David Beck, originally from Sunni, Sunik, uh, I guess maybe he was up in Georgia at this time fighting with the Georgians, but this is what the Georgians did is they said, hey, David Beck, here's a few thousand troops, take them, 2,000 troops, go down to Sunik and help them out, right? And even though they were outnumbered at this point, David Beck became a legend, almost like Vartan Mamigyonyan or Haignavit or Medzindikran or Garigin Nejda, where he fought off armies that were 10 times larger than his and had many successes and uh, became a legendary hero. Yeah. He did die. Um, well, so the famous battle at this point was the Battle of Halidzor. And I do want to tell the story because it's got a 300 kind of vibe, you know, the mm -hmm. Spartan story of 300 soldiers fighting. Um, so what happened was is David Beck and his troops fought off the Iranian advance. The Persians were trying to retake uh, the Caucasus, but they were unsuccessful. And then the Ottomans were on their way with a huge army of like 70,000 people, 70,000 soldiers, more like uh, <laughs> Turkish troops. And there was actually Turks in the region, right? And, and Armenians too at that point. Yeah, <laughs> there 70,000 was more than anything. And I'm surprised they were even able to like keep them fed at that point. It was such a large army, but... Um, so the Armenians, David Beck, they're held up in the, the, the castle or the, the, the fortress, the fortress of Halidzor, um, with their people inside. 
Seven days in, you know, they're getting hungry. And Mokhitar Sparabet, he's the number two, basically. His right-hand man, David Beck's right-hand man, he says, he has a speech where he's like, it's better that we go die with courage outside rather than stay inside and watch our loved ones, you know, perish in front of our eyes. And they stormed this 70,000, you know, large army head-on with like these 300 guys. And the story goes is where, they were so surprised or confused at the fact that this smaller trapped army was just rushing them that they thought there had to be some sort of trick or some sort of a strategy to it. And so the army panicked and they started to retreat. And during that retreat, uh, they, you know, uh, stepped on each other and killed, uh, uh, what is it called, trampled each other to death. Um, And the Armenians killed like 12,000 of them and, uh, supposedly, you know, our casualties were very low. And it's one of those famous 300-like stories that, you know, uh, that we have from that era. And so David Beck at that point was ingrained as a legendary hero. But I believe a year later, he died. He died, 1728. 1728. And, you know, they say either it was, you know, he was poisoned or he just got sick. He died. Mokhitar Sparabed, number two, he takes over, right? He's still trying to keep this movement going. Um, because at this point, Armenia, these like five, six years where they're fighting off the, let's say, the new conquerors, they're semi-independent. They're, there's hopes that potentially there'll be some sort of autonomous state. Uh, but he was still having difficulty creating that hope or sense of like possibility in the local population. So he's, uh, and the Turks are coming back. The Ottomans are coming back for round two because the legendary hero died and they want their revenge. And so Mokhitar Sparabet's trying to organize the army. Uh, create their defenses and in the town of Khunzoresk, which is in uh, Sunik. And Khunzoresk is, is actually a pretty cool town to go to because they have these mountain cave dwellings. Uh, cave <laughs> dwellings. Uh, you'll see these actually throughout Armenia where at one point Armenians would go and settle in like cliff sides because it was, a, you know, a safe place to hide yeah. or like, a, you know, stay safe, um, hard to reach, let's say. So he was trying to create this defensive fortress at this uh, in Khunzoresk, but the Khunzoreskis um, uh, didn't see any hope. They didn't think that they could win out against the, the invading army. And so they stabbed Mukhitar Sparabed in the back, um, you know, severed his head and offered his head to the, the Pasha, the, the, the Ottoman commander, and said, look, we don't want any trouble. Here's our, you know, rebellious leader's head. Uh, please don't, you know, hurt us. But I... And I really like, unfortunately, uh, the the impression that this Pasha had of these Armenians was, you know, how can I trust you as my subjects if you're willing to betray your own people like this at, at your one chance at freedom, you know? So in it's I think one of the themes that comes with this story of David Beck is like you need to unite or you will die. <laughs> you yeah. will you will not succeed unless you're all on the same page together. Um and so the David Beck story, I mean, they made a film during the Soviet Union. It it's became this uh, this legendary story up until today. Uh, and um, and this was the early 1700s, so 1722. And for me personally, because I like Armenian history a lot, I didn't know that anything like this was happening during the American Revolution. Or like, you know, like th- those, those periods. <laughs> At the same you know? time, yeah. Yeah, that we were, you know, writing a constitution to uh, for a free Armenia, that we were almost independent at one point or fighting off the Turks and the, and the Iranians and the Sassanids, Safavids. Safavids. So, uh, but it did fail or in a sense that like, uh, you know, they weren't successful in creating an independent Armenia. Um, but, uh, I believe, 
they were still, some of these leaders, some of these lords still retained some sort of autonomy or were they completely put under the Khanats at this point? So, I mean, 1722-1728 is a battle. By 1736, Safavids have completely collapsed and they're the offshores who are taking over Iran, another right. Turkic tribe, um, Shia at this point. Um, so not really related to the Ottomans. They're like Iranified Turkic tribes, I don't know, right? In a sense, like, I mean, they were part of the Iranian institution. They were Turkic tribes, but they worked for the Iranian state. Yeah. Um, and eventually, Nadir Shah came onto the scene, and he helped establish these Khanats, or Khanates. Khan being a Mongolian term for oh, like, a, a Khan, like Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, Lord, um, King, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Uh, so like these lordships, Khanats, and what were the names? Because we we hear, uh, you know, the Azeri pop people always mentioned Erevan Khanat, the uh, Karabakh Khanat. The, was it a Zangezur Khanat? No, so Sunik or Zangezur, as you mentioned, which we'll get to that term eventually. Yeah. Um, Sunik and Artsakh were both part of the Karabakh Khanat. Got it. Uh, while modern-day Armenia, most of the like, northern part, so let's say, Armavir, Arakadzotan, Gehargunik, um, Kotaik, yeah. um, and Ararat and Yerevan were part of the Yerevan or Yerevan yeah. Khanate, and then Nakhichevan Khanate included Nakhichevan, but also Vyotstur. Okay. Um, so this, uh, I don't remember if we mentioned it in the last Artsakh episode, but when these Khanates existed, were these Meliks still semi-independent at this point, or were they stripped of their... So privileges? no, the Meliks were still there. The Meliks held their power until the Russians came, and the Russians are the ones who abolished Disbanded. all... They Dude. abolished all noble titles for any non-Eastern Orthodox groups. Muslim Muslims, and Armenians, Armenians yeah. gone. Um, but they were smart enough to employ these Armenian Meliks into the army. Yeah, they did. And many of them became generals. Yeah. Um, even before the Russians came to the region, Armenians from Artsakh and Sunik were already fighting for the Russian cause, which is also, you know, went hand in hand with the Armenian cause to liberate, you know, Eastern Armenia from Iranian rule and... Yeah, yeah, that well, kind of worked out. Well, uh, in our first in our first episode in our Artsakh episode, we were kind of talking about what Karabakh means. You know, it's yeah. a it's a it's a Persian Turkic hybrid Combo. word. Yeah, um, and they keep so in the news today. When you're listening about Sunik, you'll hear Azerbaijan mentioned the Zangezur corridor. They're trying to create this corridor between Nakhichevan and mainland Azerbaijan. Let's say that. Uh, that split between Sunik, which is why Sunik is such a vital um, and geographically important place in our, for Armenia today. One, because it connects us to Iran, um, you know, where our 80% of our borders are blockaded right now by Turkey and Azerbaijan. That border with Iran is a lifeline. Um, and uh, this idea of pan-Turkism, which we've also mentioned in an earlier episode, the really geographically one of the main things that's splitting up, let's say, Central Asia, Azerbaijan, and Turkey is Sunik. Yeah. Uh, it's this physical barrier between the two. And so that's what they're hoping to get out of it is a connection between the, they want the Zangazur corridor. Uh, I thought Zangazur was a Turkic word, but you're telling me different, huh? It's not. It's actually an Armenian word. Um, it's from Zaked Zor. Yeah. So what does that mean? Not sure what Zak means, but we have it in written text, and Zor obviously means valley. So Valley of Zak, yeah, um, and it's kind of the area where modern day Der is. So right before you enter the Artsakh border, so kind of east of Goris. So it's from there down to the um, Aravno and Vorodan River um, confluence, which is near what we call um, Kashunik or Gubatla in Azerbaijani. Yeah. So that area was called Zaketzod. 
um, and eventually became Zangezur, Zangezor, yeah, which is now what the Azeris use. But again, Armenian origin. Nakhichevan is of Armenian origin. Zangezur is of Armenian origin. Yeah, Erivan is of Armenian <laughs> origin. Um, so uh, at this point, and I want to talk a little bit about the populations. Um, so you, we mentioned how there was those Akkoyonlu and Karakoyonlu, these Turkic tribes. There was the Mongols that came. There was the Iranians. And then the, you're saying uh, this last Iranian empire was the uh, Arsh, Afshars, Afshars. Afshars, who were of Turkic origin, let's say. Um, what was the, the demographics of Sunik like the 1700s, let's say, before we come into the modern era? So, I mean, 1700s, we don't really know too much, but we do know that the Karabakh Khanate, which included Sunik or Zangezur, Artsakh, Mountainous Karabakh, and then Lowland Karabakh, mm. where you have Agdam, um, Berda, or Partav, historic Armenian. Yeah. The lowlands were more populated by these nomadic Azri herd, mm-hmm, proto Azri. Yeah, I mean, they would be the ancestors of modern day Azerbaijanis. There were these Turkic tribes who were brought in the region by the Safavids to establish their hold on the region. Mm-hmm. They were Shia Muslim, so it was in their benefit. Right. Um, Put them in power in those yeah. areas and stuff. And these, they were semi nomadic, so they would actually like go up the mountain, come exactly. down the mountain, but they had, they were like mm. inhabiting more the uh, towards the bottom of the mountains. So yeah. near the Kura River. Yeah. Um, but again, they would go up the mountains of Lerna and Artsakh or mountainous Artsakh. They were not too deeply settled in Sunik. Um, the biggest group, if anything, non Armenian group would be Kurds. Mm-hmm. These Kurds again were not native to the region. These Kurds were initially brought in in the late 16th century, mm-hmm. um, and then more came in in the 18th century under um, Safavid rule. They were Shia Turks, Shia Kurds, excuse yeah. me, which is rare because most Kurds are Sunni. But these yeah. Shia Kurds were brought into the region, um, and they were kind of like a how would you phrase this? Like a block between the Sunik Meliks and the Artsakh Meliks. Oh, they put them in between. And is that what they call Red Kurdistan? Is that what we're talking about? Soviet-era Red Kurdistan. Um, right. So the first demographic census we have of the region is from 1886. And the Zangezur district of the Elizabeth Pol province of the Russian Empire was home to about 124,000 people. Okay. Um, 57,000 or 46% were ethnic Armenians. 30% or 38,000 were then called Tatars, mm-hmm. modern-day Azerbaijanis. 22% were Kurds, and then 1% were actually Persians. Uh, the Tats, right? Tat? Tats, yeah, or Tati, Tati. Well, when I've seen, uh, and Tats also lived throughout, let's say, Azerbaijan today. Baku was like a, a lot of Tat people live there. But um, and the, So the Tats are like Iranian, more Persian people. And I remember looking at a map of the demographics of Sunik, and I remember seeing like a few blobs of Tats living over there mm-hmm. too. I mean, what happened to them? Did they disappear? I mean, they physically did not disappear, but as a cultural group, they disappeared because... Assimilated? By force. The Soviets in the 1920s, 1930s basically looked at any Iranian-speaking Shia Muslim group in the South Caucasus and were like, oh, Call them Azerbaijani. you are now Azerbaijani. So that includes the Kurds who lived between Sunik and Artsakh. So the areas of Lachin or Berzor and Karvajar, Kalbajar, and even Gubatla, which mentioned yeah. Kashinik, were majority Kurdish yeah. um, and were completely Azerbaijanized and some were even expelled to Kazakhstan in 1937. Right. So Kazakhstan actually has 60,000 of these Kurds Red Kurdistan. who were 
pushed out of this so-called Red Kurdistan district between Artsakh and Armenia proper. Well, even the Talish and Lesgans, these are other minorities in Azerbaijan. The Talish were reclassified. The Lesgans were not. The Talish were the Talish, Tats, and Kurds. So Iranian-speaking groups yeah. who were more closely tied to the Azerbaijanis they lived in similar habitats, um, okay, similar areas of cohabitation. Lesgans were more in the north. Yeah, right. They're, they're so more, more north dis- Caucasian. More yeah. distinct culture. They're closer to the Caucasian Albanians, which we mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so at, to paint a picture, we're in the 1800s. Um, Armenian noble families kind of still exist, but not to the same extent that they were before the Russian rule, before maybe the last Iranian rule. Um, and there's a mixed population of people, whether that's in Sunik or Artsakh or different parts of Eastern Armenia. Um, but still a majority Armenian population. I'd say 40% is a pretty large percentage. I mean, 46% in yeah, the Zangezu district. Shushi district was over 50%. Yeah. Um, again, Armenians, even if they were, let's say, a minority, they were still the plurality in most regions yeah. of Eastern historic Armenia. Yeah. Um, Always a large portion there. And if you look at the Zangezu district, as we mentioned, it was split in half in 1920 between Red Kurdistan and yeah. Sunik as we know it. So the portion that was given to Armenia as modern-day Sunik was 60% Armenian. And then the Red Kurdistan district was about 8% Armenian. Okay. So Western Zangezur was very overwhelmingly Armenian. Eastern Zangezur was mostly Kurdish, and then some Tatars, Azeris, yeah. and then some Armenians. But a lot of these Armenians were actually wiped out during the 1905-1907 Armenian Tatar I was just massacres. about to ask you about that, actually. Like, was that... I know it happened in Nakhichevan, it happened in Artsakh, and so Sunik was also affected during these Armeno-Tatar wars. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there was one village called Zeva, which was one of the last Armenian villages left in the area where the Kurds had settled. So between Artsakh proper and mm. Sunik, um, completely razed to the ground. I mean, because if you look at the area today, I mean... There are dozens of Armenian churches and monasteries and fortresses and the homes of former Meliks. Right. Um, in co- those uh, quote-unquote occupied territories. Yeah, the, the so what would be Ka- Kashatagh, province of Artsakh, corresponding to Lachan, Gubatla, and Zengilan, those yeah. three districts, Kashatagh as we call it, mm-hmm. they are littered with Armenian monuments. Yeah. Um, and I always tell this to people, it's just because you're a minority doesn't, negate the fact that it's not your homeland you know like uh, i mean native americans that's what i was gonna say (laughs) it's like uh, what majority city in america is native american but it's you know you still say that this is their homeland you know this is their land um well so that this was armeno tatar war 1905 did affect like uh there was uh ethnic Mm -hmm. cleansing at that point um and so world war one happens the genocide happens um the first Armenian republic happens and this region was uh, claimed by both sides, I guess. Claimed and fought over by both sides. Yeah, um, Artsakh, Nakhichevan, and Sunik were fight, fought bef- yeah. between the the Tatar population and the Armenian population. Um, but, uh, you know, we still had claim on it, let's say. And uh, in 1920, the Bolsheviks are coming down into Armenia. Mm. They're trying to take it over. Um, and... Uh, and at one point, we have a rebellion. We kick the Bolsheviks out for a hot minute. Uh, but um, but they come back, obviously, with a bigger army. Yeah. And maybe you could tell the story better than I can. But Karagin Nizhde, one of those figures from that era that was uh, one of our main freedom fighters, um, in an effort to fight off the Bolsheviks, uh, kept fighting them up until, you know, they went back to where David Beck was, up in those mountains in Sunik, uh, fighting in those mountains, and actually created a 
uh temporary or like very short term but it, it, was, it was called the, the the mountainous republic of armenia republic of mountainous armenia mm-hmm. i mean it's it's complicated because uh, as you mentioned sunik artsakh and nakhichevan were these disputed territories between armenia and azerbaijan who both claimed them nakhichevan was at times in armenian control but switched over not even to azerbaijan though ottomans the ottomans yeah. exactly it was the ottomans who held sway nakhichevan because i mean the Azerbaijani government couldn't really access the region because Sunik was almost always under Armenian control. Mm-hmm. Artsakh, on the other hand, weird situation where there was a British-installed government yeah. um, led by Khosrov Bek Sultanov, who was a Turkified Kurd from the region. Mm-hmm. Um, so officially, this like Azerbaijani-associated administration, but de facto... Armenians on the ground were ruling the land in Artsakh, in mountainous Karabakh. But didn't the British... Like agree that okay, we're gonna divide these countries based on the Russian provinces, Ex- right? Yeah, the, that was a problem, and no one liked because the Aussies were like, no, we want Nakhichevan. I mean, like, no, we want Artsakh Sunik and Sunik. And yeah. Artsakh, yeah, exactly. And so that's why, um, uh, so the Bolsheviks came, and I think that's what they were agreeing on making. So the, the Bolsheviks, when they came, they took Azerbaijan first. Mm-hmm. So they took Artsakh, and they're like, hey, we'll kind of get back to this, like. Put a tap, put, yeah, yeah, put on hold, put on hold for a sec, and then they're like, hmm, Sunik. And then, so initially, the Soviets were like, you know what, we're gonna give Artsakh, Sunik, and Nakhichevan all Armenia from Azerbaijan as a sign of brotherhood of Soviet states and Soviet peoples. No, it didn't happen. Nakhichevan um, was obviously given an autonomous public status after its Armenian population was wiped out in three different massacres in 1918, 1919, and 1920. Um, Artsakh was given later on that semi-autonomous status within Azerbaijan, Sunik was given to Armenia. The western parts of it, at least of Zangezur district, the eastern parts were made into Red Kurdistan. Um, but it was, the Bolsheviks were really playing games, and as I mentioned, Gariki Nizhdeh and Armenians, the Armenian Revolutionary Federation launched the February uprising, Petr Varian Abbas Lampuchun, February 1921, so two months after Armenia was Sovietized, and Really, they took back Yerevan, Abovyan, much of Armenia. Yeah, they kicked them out. Yeah, yeah they're like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> and the Soviets were like, oh, can't do that. So they came back and Gharkinejo was like, you know what? Up to the mountains we go, which is how Armenians usually do it. We nestle in and hunker down and Guerrilla take up arms. Yeah. And yeah. But there wasn't the issue like they were, the deal was, is like after fighting and actually holding off the Bolsheviks for a long time, they couldn't actually beat us in Sunik. But I think we were, you know, getting weak or getting tired and... Um, the agreement was is like, hey, Karagin Nizhdan, you uh, rebellion dudes, if you leave, we'll give Sunik to Armenia. And it's because, yeah. the, the again, it was that they are trying to make the countries based on the earlier provinces, right? So it was Bolsheviks not so much because they clearly gave Nakhichevan to right. Azerbaijan. Um, but Karagin Nizhdan's whole thing was, I want to make sure fully that Sunik will be a part of Armenia. Right. And so that was the deal is like, we'll leave if you make yeah. this part of Armenia. And so that is why for the most part, Sunik was part of the Armenian SSR and is part of Armenia today. That's one promise the Soviets kept. Yeah. The, la- <laughs> the, the very one last and only. one. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Nejde and his followers actually went to Tabriz. Yeah. They went to south. They, Iran. they went into Iran. They skipped, they yeah. escaped through there. And then obviously other activities later in the future. Well, so, so, uh, so Armenian Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic um, has Sunik there. And uh, I mean, so 
today with Azerbaijan, we're trying to figure out this border with them, right? This is what this is what the whole most of the issue is today. Is this border has never really been solid. It's uh, even the borders that we had during the Soviet Union were like economic borders. They weren't military borders. Also, as you mentioned, economic borders. So the way the Soviets drew the borders were to align with herding <laughs> pastures and water rights and this and that. So if you look at Sunik, as we mentioned, most of the Zangezur district was given to Armenia in 1921. And then you had little bits chipped off here and there. I've noticed that because the map changes over like Yeah, so if you look afterwards. from 1922 to 1936, the areas that are now under Azerbaijani control, which they, you know, were formerly Red Kurdistan, a lot of these districts, so... North of Gori's, those pastlands around Arnavus, which Armenians and Aussies are kind of going back and forth over, or even these lakes, Sev- it's not Sevlich, it's another lake. In that area. Um, yeah. A waterway. It's called Al-Lich. Oh. Um, it's this little inlet between Gerargunik and Sunik. It's like a knife in Armenia's eastern border, if you've yeah. probably seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That area was handed over to Azerbaijan because the waters from there mostly float into Karvaj or Kalbaj. It's like, oh, so, you know, benefit them. And then the land east of Kapan, which Armenians were forced to give up as of the November 9th agreement, um, those areas which were the eastern, I mean, you can see it. I mean, now the Aussies have clear view of Kapan, its airport. The entire city is open. So those territories were initially part of Soviet Armenia, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And were forcibly given up in 19... By 1936. They chipped away a little bit by little bit. And it was only there, I mean, the Azerbaijanis were then given this enclave called Kyarki or Dikranashen right. in Ararat province, so just north of Nakhichevan. And then more bits taken off from the northeast in Tavush region. So they gave away lands in Voskepaj. They, really, they really made a mess. The man. problem was that the Soviets built the highways through these lands. So the highway from Yerevan to Sunik ran through this Azerbaijani enclave. Soviet Azerbaijani enclave, if you will, and then the other road in the north from Yerevan to Tiflis or Tbilisi ran through the northern Azerbaijani enclave in Voskepar or Askipara, as they call it. So, I mean, just Which problems is, upon problems that the Soviets made for us with their weird borders that we didn't even agree to. I mean, we were forced to yeah, we had comply no with them. In that. Moscow was like, ah, oh, this looks good. And which is why we have these, and which is why I would always argue that these borders are just problematic, right? They're, we need new borders, Ben. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that we're trying to go back to Soviet-era borders, it's like we're going back to borders drawn by dictator Stalin. Yeah, dictator Stalin that, you know, was either purposely made so complicated to where it would create these problems in the exactly. future. Or uh, borders that they assumed wouldn't, you know, require, you know, division again because they're all part of this big Soviet exactly. Union, you know? So, uh and these waterways, is, it's an interesting point you bring up. Uh, and this recent war, like my friend, one of my buddies, Nadia Kuyumjan, just recently did a study on this where he's kind of showing how a lot of the reasoning or the motivation for taking those regions, taking Artsakh, is because a lot of the water that comes from there goes into the Kura and the Araks rivers, mm-hmm. which feeds into Azerbaijan. Same thing with Sunik. Um and so controlling the water resources of the region was part of the motivation that encouraged them to like uh, uh, to be so aggressive with trying to take as much as they can. Um, and with what we're seeing today, I mean, there's is it a coincidence that they're trying to take control of Sev Leach, let's say, you know, like these uh, yeah. these new waterways here. So um, that's also a theme that we're seeing, and I think everyone should be keeping an eye out on that. I mean, the problem is with that is it's a, it's a global issue. Water is 
an issue all around the world. Um, Water wars is it's going to be a thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Turkey is using it as a weapon against the Syrians and Iraqis by blocking off the Euphrates and Tigris. And they're they're damming up the entire Araks and the Kura that goes into in the like, Turkish side. Yeah. So yeah, the blocking side of the off water to Iran, Armenia, and Azer- and Georgia and Azerbaijan and all of them. And what's interesting is Azerbaijan is the most vulnerable out of all exactly. of them because they're the, the end. They're <laughs> the end of it all. So like, <clears throat> it'll affect Armenia and the Arad Valley and Georgia, but it'll affect mostly. Uh, Azerbaijan and I really see this as like almost an opportunity to create a wedge between these two countries. They never politicize this issue. If you notice, they'll politicize other water resource issues, but not yeah. the one between Azerbaijan and Turkey. But um, so there are many reasons why Sunik is a geographically, strategically, politically, militarily an important place to have. You know, it's a lifeline to Armenia. Also mines. I mean, areas rich in minerals. You're right. I mean, even on the the, the other side of the border now, in that Red Salt Curtis that you're talking about, uh, there's all these gold mines that um, the, the Azerbaijan's you know creating contracts with the European companies to go and mine up now. So uh, there's a lot of mines in the south of Armenia as well. Um, so the Soviet Union broke up it, uh, and we adopted the borders of those regions and. Uh, and the rest is history. We know the Artsakh war happened. We know what happened in November. And today we're seeing these issues along the Sunik border. And, you know, I'd like to stress to everybody how important this part of Armenia is and how rich it is in our uh, ancient Armenian history and uh, in contemporary Armenian history. So, Chris, thank you again for doing this with us. We're going to, I hope we'll do more of these. Um, and if you guys notice, we'll be you know, a lot of these things overlap throughout the episode. So thank you again, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, definitely read up on Sunik, everyone. Hell yeah. You have been listening to High Tuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haig Minasian, and we're just a couple of Armenians talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.